Welcome to episode 175 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Mark Hislop. And today I'm going to be talking to Kingsmill Bond, who's a senior principal in the strategic analysis and engagement group of the Rocky Mountain Institute about a uh, a post he did called the energy transition in five charts is certainly getting a lot of attention uh, in my world. And it coincidentally uh, came out just before a new report from the International Energy Agency, which is an update to their technology perspectives 2022 uh, which is about clean, ener uh, clean energy industry, the manufacturing of the things that go into the energy transition, such as solar panels and wind turbines and electric vehicles and batteries, all of that good stuff. And it aligns perfectly with the five charts that Kings Mill has, has created. And folks, this is going to be, this is an interesting conversation for me because I've been talking to Kings Mill now for three or four years. And the things we talked about back in 2019, when I first interviewed him, are now coming true. And it's turned out that his argument, I, in my opinion, has, is being validated. So on that note, Kings Mill, welcome to the interview. Hi, Mark, and thanks for having me. This is fascinating for me. So let's talk. Oh, let's talk first about the IEA report. So they they brought out this report in in, um, in January, and they've had to update it already. And the crazy thing about it uh, is there's a chart in here, and I'm looking at it, and it talks about the IEA's net zero scenario. Okay, so mm -hmm. if we're going to get to net zero by 2050, what do what do we? Well, how many EVs do we have to have? How many how many batteries? How many plants? All of that that sort of thing. And the in 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 my in Canada in the the discussion, the net zero scenario has always been seen as a fantasy. It's never it's never going to happen. That not a chance. And this new report from the IEA says uh, it gives us five technologies, solar, heat pumps, wind, batteries, and electrolyzers to make hydrogen. And it says, here's what we did, and here's how many, uh, the manufacturing capacity, okay? And is it on track to meet the 2030 milestone set out in their IEA scenario for net zero CO2 emissions by, by 2050? And 2021, 2022, it grew. But for things like solar PV, by the end of 2023, we're going to have 165% of the required capacity to meet net zero. I, I'm sorry, my friend, that's a jaw-dropping number. So what's your take? What's your, how, do you, how would you respond to the, or what's your insight, your take on the IEA report? Well, uh, this IEA report is extremely important and does indeed, as you say, validate or or, or start to validate this kind of framing of, of exponential change. Um, because what what they're they're saying, as you pointed out, is that in the core technologies of the energy transition, and they focus on the three most successful ones, which is solar batteries and electrolyzers, um, we we have or we're about to have um, plans to put into place enough capacity to get us onto the net zero um, uh, uh, framework. Um, and so, as you said, you know, we'll have um, we'll have about one thousand one hundred gigawatts of solar. Uh, capacity, sorry, solar production per annum um, is, is planned for 2030, um, about uh, 6,000 uh, gigawatt hours of batteries. Um, 
and and both of those the point to me is that both of those pretty much on track well in the case of solar it's much higher than their expected requirement for for net zero which is which is 650 and in, in the case of batteries it's about the same um but but the point to me is that you know we are putting this stuff into place and and, and in fairness i mean this is exactly what people like carlotta perez has have been saying um for years that when technologies get cheap enough if they're superior then capital is not a problem um and and people will build the equipment and that's precisely what's been happening well it is and the uh so i mentioned the the manufacturing capacity uh as a percentage of what's required for solar but let's go through the other uh four so heat pumps are now in 2022 we're at 30% uh, in uh, by 2030, they'll be no. Sorry, at the end of the first quarter in 2023, they'll be 42 percent. Wind that was at 25 percent, it will be at 29 percent. Batteries will be at 11 percent, and at the end of they'll be 97 percent. That's how fast we're building battery plants and electrolyzers, five percent, and then it'll be uh, at the end of first quarter of 2023, 57 percent. This is like we've already this we're into the second quarter. These we blowing past these numbers. Uh and how in the world did we uh have such tremendous growth in just the last couple of years? So so just to be clear, um these are these are um these are not if this is not in fact capacity that's already been built. These are plans for future capacity to be built. Right. Um, yes. Fair. By 2030 specifically. Um and and um the, the, again as the the IEA and you know and, and we and many others pointed out it's like you know you have uh, uh, um it only it only takes a board meeting to make the plan right and then it's in the plan and and um it only in fact takes 12 to 18 months also to build a lot of this capacity and you know we like we've been saying for a long time you cannot in fact forecast the future based upon um people's uh, people's plans because all you so so about the you know these numbers are very interesting they're very helpful and they show that kind of this 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 transition is on track but and as again the IEA points out you know give it another 12 months and we're going to be have even more um expected capacity in all of these different sectors so so I think you know the, it can get a little bit complicated but the absolutely core point is that um we are building out the renewable energy economy um at the scale that is required to reach net zero and that particular impediment to change simply does not exist let's talk about your first chart which is the energy technology and this is the po first point that you made the energy transition is a technology revolution and um listeners can go if you want some canadian context on this i i interviewed uh, mike andrade who's the ceo of uh, morgan solar and he's been in this business for over 30 years. And he argues, you know, uh, you can look in our on our podcast platform and the title, I think, is uh, technology as a uh, energy as a technology versus energy as a commodity. And he kind of lays out this argument in the Canadian context. And it's it takes it's a paradigm shift. And I want to illustrate this by a discussion I had with an economist who I really have a lot of respect for, uh, Kent Fellows from the uh, University of Calgary. And we were discussing this on uh, Twitter last night, and he was saying, you know, the, the Canadian government has just spent $10 billion to subsidize a, a Volkswagen battery plant in Ontario, and then there's Stellantis who got another 
another very large uh, subsidy to do another battery plant. And he's saying he's using the old opportunity cost model. You know, well, if we had taken that money and, and spent it, instead of giving it to profitable com companies, if we had given it, you know, spent it on healthcare or public transit, we would that would have been a better expenditure. And my point to him was, this is the new, this is the industry of the future. This is the economy of the future. And you only have two, you, there's two ways to, to play in that sandbox. You either build it or you buy it. And we didn't build it. We, we tarried while the rest of the world, like China, was investing in this manufacturing capacity. So if we want to play, then we have to, to buy it. And that just that costs money. But it, it was his mindset. Wrapping his head around this, you know, this has changed so quickly. We're building this brand new manufacturing capacity. And the question is, does Canada want to get its share of that or not? And so I don't know, what would be your take on that on that conversation? Yeah, look, I mean, there is there is the most extraordinary land grab going on right now. And and it kind of reminds me of the early days of the Internet. Um, people are, are are realizing that the, the future lies in dominating these these um, very quickly growing superior technologies of solar and wind and hydrogen um, and, and batteries. And they are seeking all across the world to establish themselves as serious players in these industries uh, and and um governments everywhere are, 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 are chasing this so essentially this kind of this race really got kicked off by um by putin's invasion of ukraine um which was kind of the sputnik moment where people turned around and they were like okay now we need an alternative fossil fuels wow there is this renewables it's growing really quickly oh but china now dominates it we better catch up and and that's kind of kicked off the most extraordinary race to the top, um, and and you know you, you can you can distinguish very clearly between countries which are seizing the opportunity and 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 those which 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 are not. And and you know my my contention or our contention would be that those countries which which fail to seize the opportunity are going to get left behind in this in this race. And you know you might as well compete. Yeah, well, that's exactly right. And and if you don't work to establish these kinds of industrial clusters, then you're not going to take advantage of the supply chain uh, that gets developed. You're not going to develop the new technologies to supply those clusters. You're not going to, in the case of Canada, which has a lot of, uh, of the raw materials that are required, like critical minerals, you're not going to have as many opportunities. And and, and so I, 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 I'm a big fan of the, the federal government's industrial policy, which you know, is is aggressively going out and subsidizing these. And, I, you know, 10 years we'll look back on this where Canada has an electric vehicle manufacturing uh, uh, cluster uh, that replaces the existing internal combustion engine automotive, you know, automotive cluster. And, and we'll say that was a good investment. And look at all of the, you know, the supply chains and the spinoffs and, and the jobs that were created and on, on and on and on. And you only get one shot at this. You know, once it's passed you by, uh, playing catch up, I think, in this particular game would be really difficult. Uh, would you agree? Yeah, I mean, it, it it is definitely true that people have a unique moment right now to get themselves a, a serious position in these um, in in these industries of 
the future. It's also fair to say that plenty of money will be wasted by people attempting to get into the game and failing. I mean, the UK has already got some examples of battery companies trying to do that. So it's, you know, success is by no means guaranteed. And you have to play to your strengths in, in, in every location. But of course, as you mentioned, you know far better than I do. I mean, Canada has a number of, 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 of very considerable strengths. You know, it's, it's, it's raw material in uh, it's raw material endowment, it's huge amounts of space, um, and it's wind endowment, so on and so forth. And and um uh, yeah, I mean wise governments will play to their own to their own strengths and and um but it, I think the main point is that you just have to as you put it earlier, you have to rethink the way the world is going to be. There's no point kind of trying to subsidize and prop up the the, the fossil fuel industry, which is kind of facing inevitable uh long-term decline that that really is a waste of capital um you, you know you have to, to 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 get into successful future industries not subsidize the past ones and you know the the real problem is that the past industries in in, in many countries have have have, have lots of, of power in this historic you know links and they have all the capital flooding in and therefore they can sort of bend government policy and you know that's great for them for a short period but it's really not good for for countries which um get distracted by it well, that indeed, and uh, it's not good for subnational uh, governments uh, either. And I'm thinking specifically in the Canadian context of Alberta, uh, which, you know, it, uh, on Monday uh, had a an election uh, and returned the United Conservative Party, which is a is irre irrevocably captured by the oil and gas industry, and is. Uh, slow walking the energy transition in that in that province and it's going to be caught by the the impending collapse of the oil and gas industry and uh in later today i'll be uh, interviewing uh, dr uh, phil verlager who's uh, an expert on international oil markets and and he's going to make the argument that the uh, oil markets are ready for collapse this decade and that's that that which is consistent with you with with what you've been arguing, Kingsville. And I yeah. think, you know, anyway, I'll turn it over to you. No, I mean, the thing is, like, the the people, the mistake that the incumbent fossil fuel industry is making is to imagine that it's all about them, and and it's not surprising because, like, for fifty or hundred years, um, demand's been consistently rising, and you've been able to get super profits and rents, and it's been fabulous. There's no no serious competition. But the problem now is for the first time ever, there is competition and that competition is on learning curves and um, costs are getting lower and lower for the uh, competitive technologies. And they're now being backed by an increasing number of governments. And and therefore, the um, the demand for your product in, in the fossil fuel system is, is going to start falling. And, and as you pointed out, that just means that prices will will fall far faster than people realize. And, you know, the, the clues in the name is a commodity market, you know, and and if you're in a commodity market towards the top end of the cost curve and um and and prices are falling you're just not going to make any money and and um if you then you know if you then bet the house on trying to maintain and prop up that system you're just it's just not possible because at the end of the day it's not the producers who will um determine the price it's the consumers and if china continues to do what they're now doing and ship as i'm sure Philip will be talking about later and um you know and 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 continues to shift extraordinarily rapidly towards electric vehicles. They're just not going to be 
providing the expected growth in in um, in, in oil demand that the market's looking for. As I'm fond of saying, uh, for the first time in 125 years, oil has a competitor. It's called electricity. And it's uh, very interesting to watch the oil and gas industry uh, try to deny that fact or or minimize it. And uh, but, um, you know, we have the the examples of Blockbuster and Kodak, uh, you know, to fall back on when incumbents make mistakes like that. Yeah, and, and I mean, it's the thing is, you don't even need Blockbuster and, and, and Kodak. I mean, this is a story as old as the hills. Um, you know, Shamtiri and Creative Destruction, incumbent industries struggling to realize and, and, and recognize change. And, and what makes oil especially vulnerable, sorry, I mean, again, I kind of defer to, to Phil on this issue, but as, just to warm to the theme for a moment, what makes oil especially vulnerable is that, you know, A, it's, it's um, in, in cars especially, it's incredibly wasteful. I mean, like, you know, you, you're wasting... 75% of, of the intrinsic energy. So, you know, these electric vehicles coming through are three or four times more efficient. Um, so, you know, that that makes things especially vulnerable. And then the other aspect of vulnerability is the very high levels of rent. You know, if, if the the Saudis are getting stuff out of the ground for 10 and setting it for 80 or 90, um, you know, that's just a great fat target um, painted on the industry and, 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 and encouraging people to come in with superior solutions. And, you know, now that they are, um, you know, you can't expect people to to have too much loyalty to to an industry which has been um, has had them over a barrel for decades. Right, and 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 the, the I think the the obvious uh, support for that argument is the way in which consumers have embraced the electric vehicles. But let's go on to to the second chart. The renewables revolution is exponential, not linear. Now, this lies at the heart of your argument, uh, Kingsmill. I think every time I interview you, you talk about this. Explain the difference between exponential and linear growth in this context, please. So. so... Um, linear growth is is pretty easy. You can you know just draw on a on a on a chart with a line, with a ruler, right? You know, if you're if um, if you're selling um, one unit this year, then the expectation in a linear linear environment is that um, sorry, if you're increasing your sales by one unit this year, then the expectation is that in ten years' time you will also be increasing your sales by one unit. That's you know kind of standard linear growth. Um, Forecast, and that's what, in, of course, famously the International Energy Agency did in their forecast for the um, the expected deployment of solar for you know, for decades. They were saying um, new solar sales this year are ten gigawatts, and you know, in twenty years' time, they'll still be an extra ten gigawatts. And then, you know, a couple of years later, it was twenty, and they'll over it'll be twenty, and so on and so forth. Um, you know, and now it's two hundred and fifty or three hundred and fifty actually in twenty twenty three. And and the point, and and that's. That's exponential growth. So exponential growth um, has sales um, r- rising quickly um, to to much higher levels on a um, on on. In fact, technically, it's of course, as I'm sure your listeners will be well aware, it's not in fact a pu- not. Uh, we're slightly loose about our use of the word exponential. It's an S curve, um, uh, but you know, it, it it's just it's growing very quickly, and it means that your um, your uh your it's quite reasonable to expect that your sales in uh 10 years time will be um say three to ten times higher than they are today uh, my uh, favorite part of explaining s curves uh is and I, I fall back on my graduate work of 40 years ago 
and that is the new technologies. Uh, we call, we often by the time they they get into the market, and they begin pushing out the old technology. We think, oh well, you know, th this transition is just a couple of years old. And the the temptation uh, here uh, is because I, he I hear this all the time. Well, the energy transition just got going, like twenty twenty or something, and not understanding that the the technologies that were the key technologies here have deep deep roots you know commercial solar panels go back to the 70s and commercial wind turbines go back to the 80s and the lithium battery was introduced in early early 90s on and on these technologies have been on the flat part of the beginning of the s curve for decades and they've been getting better and better and better and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and what we're seeing now the reason they've got our attention is because now they've hit their inflection point and they're racing up the the hockey stick part of the of the S curve. And that's yes. why they've got our attention but they forget all of the prep work that was done uh to make these technologies competitive in the time, you know in the decades uh, previous. Yeah, this is exactly. I mean we we tend to talk about there were well, people tend to talk about there being five stages in in, in an S curve but in reality there's three. And the first one is where you basically get price down to parity, and that takes decades. And then the second one is, as soon as price hits parity or gets close to parity, you get this extraordinary hockey shape, um, uh, hockey stick S, S curve, which usually plays out. And this is the important point over one to two decades only. Um, so you, know, you go from about five percent market share to about eighty percent market share in you know not much more than ten years. And and um, and then you the, the then you get the kind of the rollout phase where um, you you you're no longer growing this the um sales very quickly but they you're just running it out and it's actually much easier and our big contention is that actually well we'll talk about this i guess in a second but this is the decade where you're just going to go up the s-curve in some of these really core technologies why don't we go to chart number four you know the decade of disruption and i have to say you know uh i haven't contributed much but for the last couple of years i've been talking about the 2020s as being the decade of disruption so I feel like I, I submit been... you in that case, Marco. I probably pinched the idea from you. Uh, let's say that you did. Yeah, make make my day. Make my day, Kingsville. Let, let's Thank say you, you did. But yeah, I've been talking about the decade of disruptions to, to, to 2020s and and arguing that it'll go to 2030, 2035. Uh, and at that point, the you know many of these technologies will have pushed the the old technology out of the market to the point where you know the the other the new technology is dominant and you know heat pumps electric vehicles solar and wind will all be near the top of their their sales s curves and i wouldn't if you'd asked despite arguing that the, the 2020s are the decade of disruption if you'd asked me in 2020 if the all those technologies would be near the top of the hockey stick i would have said no 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 you know they'll be you know a third of the way a quarter of the way whatever but the idea that that adoption has sped up so that rapidly, that is new to me. I I, I have I'm having a not a hard time, but I'm it, it, it's uh, so much has changed in the 15 months since Russia invaded Ukraine and changed everybody's thinking about energy security and shifting to renewables and electric technologies. It's been so rapid; it's just hard to keep up. Yeah, I mean, if I I mean if I can just address. The, the the point that's absolutely the heart of this conversation um and and the big difference between our our perspective and that of of the 
your, your fellow Canadian academic, Vaclav Schmil, um, and I'm sure your listeners will be very familiar. He talks a lot about stocks that, you know, the 1,400 million cars, right? We, we're talking here about flows, um, which is the 80 million annual car sales. And, and the point to me is that nobody's disputing it takes a long time for the stocks to change, but that's kind of not the point. You know, markets, we're quite good at, as soon as the stocks change, we can figure it out. It's just just to put it on a spreadsheet. It's not really difficult. Um, so the real debate in markets is about is about flows, and and therefore in, in this instance, sales of cars. So um, our, our contention therefore would be that um, we we're going to go very very quickly up um, uh, that the uh, the S curve of of e electric vehicles supplying all of the new cars which are being sold. And, and let me illustrate that with the world's largest car market, which is China. Um, it, this this month, it's thirty four percent of sales are electric. And you know, for, to, to be put this in context, like five years ago, it was one percent. Um, thirty four, it's quite clearly you put that under a standard S curve. You're going to be um, at the top of the hockey stick by the end of this decade uh, in the world's largest car market, and basically it then spreads out from there. And and if 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 if, if you can accept that's happening in cars, it's very intuitive. It's a similar story in solar. So, um, you know, in in, um, in in 2022, we installed 250 gigawatts of solar. This year, about be about 350. Um, the 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 top of the the uh, the S curve is is about a thousand. I mean, whether it's a thousand or or 1,200 doesn't really matter. It's about a thousand. And um, at the moment, we're on track to get to around a thousand by the end of this decade of of solar deployment. And and about a thousand gigawatts of new solar. Is is enough to supply you with about call it fourteen hundred terawatt hours. Global electricity demand growth is about eight hundred, and the depreciation of the old system is about another six hundred. So you know that would enable solar both to supply all of the growth and to supply all of the um, depreciation of the old system without actually having to cut into the fat. And you know then you can get into a separate debate. You know how much how much we it's going to push the old system up quicker. But the point to me is that. That that is a quite intuitively credible number, which is totally comparable with with um, with the top of the uh, uh, top of the S curve in um, in electric vehicles. I'm also uh, running across examples now all the time of of the application of these technologies in ways that we maybe didn't anticipate. And I think specifically in this context of the interview I did yesterday with Rod Matthews of uh, San Diego. And uh, his company uh, is installs microgrids. And so what they do is they'll go into like an industrial park. Let's say you've got 10 commercial and industrial uh, customers in an industrial park. Now, in the U.S. where, you know, they've had some, especially in California, where they've had outages and brownouts and, and you know, peak load has now become a problem there. These customer and, and, ex and extraordinarily high electricity prices, this is ripe for disruption. And so what he does is his company goes in and they they set up this microgrid and, you know, it's driven by uh, the generation comes from solar. They've got battery installed. They've got all the power electronics and whatever else they need to make this work. It's extraordinarily flexible. Uh, the, the, the cost uh, per unit of, you know, per kilowatt hour of electricity is maybe half. Uh, significantly less than what they're getting in from the utility. They've now got uh, resilience that they didn't have, which for many of these businesses is really important. They can in they can install demand management. I mean, this is just such a superior system to the one that they they had, and it's at a much lower cost. And we're now we're seeing. He says 
we're even doing this for like restaurants. Um, and yeah. this is, to me, this is the, the, the change in just a couple of years where this technology is not, it's not just utility scale. It's now neighborhood scale. It's small business right. scale is extraordinary. Very exciting. Very exciting. I'd, I'd love to, I'll have to listen to that episode, but look, I, I think, you know, the point is that this, as so often these new um, core technologies have unleashed a tsunami of innovation um, right across the board. I mean, this 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 is very interesting. There's many great stuff for you know, for restaurant level, but and you've also got stuff going on with heat storage and home networks. You've got the idea of um, uh, producing steel next to iron ore um, in Australia, and therefore stopping shipping iron ore around the world, um, and so on and so forth. You know, and um, demand shifting to areas of of cheap energy production, sunny spots and windy spots. We we're just on the cusp. Markham, a, a really very, very exciting um, uh, decade as people um, to do all this stuff. I mean, literally every day you're kind of running across new, clever ideas and, and uh, humanity is very, very good at doing this stuff. Yeah, it kind of reminds me in a way of the internet uh, boom in the 90s. And, you know, they were talking about how it was going to change things. And we all went, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. And, you know, it's it's revolutionized uh, commerce. It's revolutionized finance. It's, I mean, it's, you know, now we look back and go, oh, that's what they were talking about. And well, speaking of that's what they were talking about, your your third chart is about the renewables revolution being led by China. And this is a really hard thing for North Americans to get their heads around because we still think of China as, you know, churning out plastic gugas at a cheap price and, you know, taking advantage of their cheap labor. And in fact, what China has done is become the North America, uh, uh, you know, the United States of the modern world. I mean, remember, you know, post-war uh, U.S. It emerged from the war as a as the preeminent industrial power, and it basically rode that up until the the 80s when it started offshoring its industrial capacity. Uh, but nevertheless, that's where China is now. And yeah, no, I I think the, the, you know the, we we have a a way of framing it again using the kind of Carlotta Perez framing. So the first two um big technology revolutions, um industrial revolution, then um deployment of of, of uh, steel and railways, and they're basically led by the UK. The next three were led by the US. And this one's being led by China. And you know it's absolutely empirically um uh easy to prove. Um so, you know, China, as everyone knows, is as the workshop of the world, is responsible for 80 or 90% of the production of all these technologies. Um, China's the lowest cost environment. China's got very strong reasons to, because they, they lack oil and gas, very strong reasons to search for alternative solutions. And, and then and then um most importantly, you know, China is is dominant in the deployment of these technologies as well at home. So um uh, for example, in in electric vehicles, in 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 bikes and buses and and then cars, China absolutely dominates the industries. All of those industries in the deployment of um, uh, solar and wind, again, China is leading. In, in capex, China is leading. So, sorry, I mean, the reason I'm giving you all these observations is because people might you know kind of struggle to imagine this is true, but it just is. Um, and and you know, possibly the one that is least appreciated, but also extremely interesting, is that. Uh, Ch China is electrifying its light industrial sector uh, extremely quickly, and, um, and and again we in the West sadly are not, and and that again is giving these 
Chinese industrial companies uh, an, an, an advantage. So the, the point is, it is being led by China. And the reason why we focus so much on the Chinese leadership angle is that the kind of problems that we face in the West um, of, um, and, and particularly prevalent, of course, in, in North America, of, you know, um, a, a, um, a, a system which resists change um, and a polarized political environment and so on and so forth. And, you know, it's difficult to get grids and permitting and, and uh, to put up your solar and wind panels. That's just not a problem in China. You know, the government says do it and they just do it. And, um, you know, they, everyone's i'm sure seeing these extraordinary pictures of um these the, the deserts in mongolia in the far west being carpeted with um solar and and, and wind turbines in a huge new um uh, pipes being sorry um uh grids being strung to the um industrial centers in the east i mean it's happening extraordinarily rapidly and and so, so what's then happened is china got so far ahead that putin provides the wake-up call in february last year and and you know the response has been ara and 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 a reaction in Europe, Japan, and India. Everyone's like, oh, "Crikey, we better catch up." So it's almost as if this Chinese leadership is dragging the rest of us behind them um, to compete in these energy technologies of the future. And therefore, we should stop focusing on how hard it is to do it in our countries and just ask yourself the question: Do you want to be left behind or not? And if you, you know, if you want to be left behind and become a second or third rate country, then fine. You know, that's your choice. But, um, you know, most countries don't. There's a there's a big debate in Alberta uh, and it's dragged the rest of the country into this debate about whether, you know, well, the argument is that that Canada the, on the West Coast should build more clean uh, LNG plants in order to sell, you know, LNG to China. Uh, in particular, to displace uh, coal, and it, there's this there's this almost paternalistic kind of attitude to China. You know, like it's the China of the '50s and '60s, where we have to help them out. You know, they've got this emissions problem from from their coal plants, and and so we're we're going to go help them out because they can't, you know, uh, they can't get their emissions down. Not re recognizing the fact that by the time that Canada could build another LNG plant, assuming it could do that, which it can't, but assuming it could do that, is that renewables and, and other you know, forms of electricity generation, whether it's nuclear or whatever, China won't need it. China is going to phase out its own coal plants in due time, just given the amount of renewables that it's installing over, over time. Is that a reasonable argument or not? Yeah, it's completely reasonable. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's extremely naive to um to imagine that chinese fossil fuel demand for electricity generation um is going to be increasing we think it's extremely close to the peak i mean the government as you know the government, chinese government target is peak 2030 peak coal 2025 they've already hit um we're about to hit their 2030 um deployment of solar and wind targets because as so often happens in china never happens sadly for us in the west you know they're hitting these targets far sooner than expected because um it's cheaper and easier and they can deploy solar and wind in six months whatever it is so you know this this these numbers are already being hit or about to get hit and uh, and therefore it's highly likely that chinese coal demand is is already at the peak and then i always hear as a counter argument oh but how about this 
50 gigawatts, which they, you know, they're, they're um, of new coal, which they're putting in place. I mean, there are two answers to that. The first one is um, they're, they're spending, um, uh, sorry, they're, they're deploying about five or six times as much renewables as they are coal, right? So it's kind of coal is, is a, a much smaller piece of the mix than uh, renewables. But the other much more important argument is that it's um, coal's going to move from base load to backup. And you might indeed have more plants, but you're going to continue to run them at much, much lower levels of utilization. And therefore, we shouldn't confuse capacity um, of uh, coal generation with actual demand for coal itself. Um, again, that would be a you know, very naive error. So, yeah, it's um, it, it's very obvious that China is very close to peak, uh, peak coal demand. And, and the point then is that, as, as is the nature of exponential change, as soon as you hit the peak, um, you bounce along, you bounce along for you know, a few years on a plateau, but then actually you get driven off quite quickly as the stuff, as your competing technologies then continue to move up the exponential um, supply curves. And uh, yeah, so you know if if if, if Canada's got gas that it's planning to sell to China in, in whatever it is six or seven years, you know you're going to face an entirely different um, uh, purchasing environment where you know first of all the coal is going to be in free fall, and then secondly they're just not going to want that gas because why would you when you can got Get Chinese produce coal. Uh, sorry, Chinese produce wind and solar. Um, what's the point of buying foreign expensive LNG? Well, and, and, and the irony here is that uh, a lot of the uh, the oil bros, as we call them in uh, in Canada, uh, will will point to energy security. You know, and they they think that the scramble, uh, Europe scramble for natural gas in the wake of of Putin cutting off the forty percent of their supplies that Russia provided. They think they think that's the essence of energy security. You know, where can we find where can we find hydrocarbon molecules to replace the ones that Putin cut off? Not really realizing, of course, that that's that's really just a short term strategy uh, to, you know, that Europe is deploying to get them through the, the next few years. Whereas, in fact, what they've really done is sped up their electrification and their adoption of renewables because they don't want to be uh, held hostage by uh, by. Um, uh, imports. The, the weapon, what, what put the, the lesson of Putin is that energy can be weaponized. And if you're a large importing nation, you do not want to be vulnerable to the weaponization of energy. Is that a fair argument? That That's exactly it. And particularly, and again, to go back to China, since it's a, at the core of this debate, China has coal, but it doesn't have oil and gas, and it, at least not in the size um, that that uh, people would want it to be um, using, and and therefore any way to avoid the use of oil and gas is highly likely to be seized in a in a in an ever in ever more fragile geopolitical environment, and and that's again another reason why um, it's highly likely that electric vehicle sales will continue to to rise very quickly up the escrow in China because. Um, why, why, you know, why wouldn't you if you were the Chinese government? Right. Um, your chart number five. By 2030, the debate will be very different. Renewables will dominate the sale of energy producing and consuming technologies. Cheap renewables will be even cheaper. Fossil fuel demand will be off the current plateau and in clear decline. And I've I've been saying this since 2020 is that when we look back from 2030, we won't recognize the economies that uh, of 
you know the major the the uh, uh, the richer countries, and it'll be a very very different world. And the problem is that we're having trouble, uh, at least in some quarters of our country, uh, imagining what that world will look like. And I guess we need to have more conversations like this to help people understand that it's going to be an electric world uh, and a low carbon fuels world like hydrogen uh, as opposed to a fossil fuels world. Yeah, I, I think to help you, and again, as a finance person, you know, we're used to looking forward and, and projecting a few years into the future. And if financial markets look forward, they, they they look at the world that they anticipate. And, and it's completely obvious that the the uh, the view from the bridge in 2030 will will be one of endless growth for this and of deployment of this renewable stuff and endless decline for fossil fuels. I think there's almost no serious dispute about that. Um, and and to, to help your listeners understand, you know, this, think about the internet. Um, when was when did half of the world um, uh, use the internet? And 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 the answer uh, this is hard to ask a rhetorical question on air, I guess. But you know, the answer is twenty eighteen, right? You know, if you had sat around in two thousand and 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 said, oh well, I'm not going to do anything about the internet until half the world is using it, um, you know you just would have completely missed out on this story. And it's exactly the same here. There's no point in having these boring conversations about, you know, how much oil we will still be using in 2030. And, you know, um, we still have these legacy assets. Nobody will care anymore because they'll just be kind of in rundown. You've got to look forward. Well, I, I couldn't agree more. And uh, it's, it's funny in countries like Canada that are very dominated by raw material extraction, and the oil and gas uh, industry, uh, which is very good at narrative management, you know, I'll, I'll, a tip of the hat. It's it's not the right narrative for this moment, but they're very good at their narrative. And what their narrative does is it sucks up all the oxygen in the conversation around energy and new technologies and makes it difficult to have the conversation that you and I are having uh, to have that conversation on a, on a national level. And uh, it's going to hold Canada back. I, I think the only thing that will save our bacon uh, really is the fact that we're next door to the United States and we'll be dragged along in their wake, which is a, a sad comment on the leadership of, of the country. Uh, and But there it is. Well, as always, King of Mill, this has been a fascinating conversation and it's very interesting to me to track the our conversations over the last you know number of years and to see how accurate uh, your your forecasts were in previous interviews and tell us what can we expect what can, list what can listeners expect to see in the next say 2 to 5 years well in, in 2 to 5 years i think um the the conversation is so so you know the easy stuff is that you're going to continue to see this stuff um, being deployed at scale, moving up the S curve, um, and uh, the, the kind of problems that we're all facing at the moment about intermittency and minerals continuously being solved as they have been for a while. So, I mean, that's the the kind of simple thing. But I think more interestingly, I think in two to five years the debate will change, and the kind of arguments about continuity and um, and and you know. Uh, and um, end game problems that um, that, that, that Smill and others talk about, that will no longer be 
the central debate anymore. We, we will move on, I would suggest, to you know, a, a more mature discussion about, okay, change is happening. How do we, how do we take advantage of it? Um, uh, and, and actually, uh, it's interesting you, you mentioned you know, the, um, you, know, you being a loyal patriotic Canadian. I would suggest that actually that's the point. You know, patriotic, patriots should be embracing uh, this uh, this this shift. Um, this is absolutely the the right thing to do for your country. Well, it is, and Canada is one of the. Well, it, it, I think it is a, in the in developed countries. It's the uh, we have the highest per capita emissions uh, of any other country. Uh, but more than that, I think, and too often we get caught up in the emissions debate, which I you know is a very important. I mean, climate the climate crisis is an issue. But the whole point of the debate of, of climate change in, in, you know, up to now has been that we need to adopt uh, clean energy. Well, that's that's it's not a done deal, but the process is irrevocable now. We are going to have a we're going to switch out of dirty fuels to clean energy, and the only question now is is timing. So there's, you know, for me, this isn't an issue about cl a climate issue. It's an issue about adoption of clean energy, building out the industry that makes the equipment that enables the adoption of clean energy, changing systems, taking advantage of the opportunities that are there, mitigating risks. It's a whole different conversation that needs to be had that in Canada we're not having. And I, I and I interview enough Americans. It's astonishing to me that only three or four or five years, we were talking about how backwards the U.S. was and how they weren't getting on, you know, they they weren't, you know, uh, they weren't uh, uh, attacking their, their emissions uh, because they have a very emissions-intense uh, economy and they weren't uh, taking advantage, you know, aside from California, which was kind of an outlier. And now all of a sudden, when I, the Americans are redoing everything and like their power grid, it's astonishing how fast they're moving. And the Inflation Reduction Act and all of the other associated acts, like the Chips Act and the and so on, the Infrastructure Act, uh, is is flooding. You know, it, it's it's providing capital and, and other support to these industries to speed up that adoption even faster. And I look at sleepy old Canada, and I go, you know, we're not leading anything. At best, we're going to so. Anyway, that's my take. Very interesting. Well, I, you know, just a general point to pick up on that. And as we finish, is that you know, it, it would be a mistake to think this is about morality um, uh, and, and doing the right thing or anything else. It's This is about business. Climate was the spot. Exactly. But economics is now the driver. And um, you know, if, if people don't get that, then, you know, they're going <laughs> to find themselves carried out. Well, indeed, and they and they don't get it yet, uh, and we'll we'll see uh, if in Canada they do because in the U.S. I, I think they do, Europe they certainly do, China and and other Asian countries. This is you know I, I've I've interviewed uh, I've interviewed uh, global analysts about various aspects of the energy transition, and they say you know places like Vietnam and Malaysia and Indonesia, they see the opportunity. You know, this is a chance to make a quantum leap for them. You know, to build that that kind of clean energy industry that brings prosperity and, and good paying jobs and all of the stuff that, you know, countries like Canada have benefited from decades. I mean, these it's people are not. Look at, yes. look at Vietnam, like Vietnam in three years leapfrogged the United States. 
um, three years in terms of the share of electricity coming from solar. Um, Chile, Barbados, Morocco, they're all, you know, all, not everyone is doing it, but enough people are doing it. And, it, you know, it clearly can be done. It clearly can be done, and uh, and those who recognize that will will lead, and those who don't uh, will not. And I'm afraid that we Canada will fall into the latter group. But nevertheless, risk for another conversation. Kingsmill, a pleasure okay. as always, sir. Thank you. Thank you.